All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James, I'm your host, and today is episode 17. So today on the show, we have Dale Zimmerman. He is the owner of the Peacock Alley restaurant in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I learned so much from this interview about North Dakota in general, and then the history of of North Dakota politics, as well as the food scene. So very interesting interview and very grateful for Dale taking the time to come on the show today. Before I dive into the interview, I wanted to take a quick moment to remind you all to tell someone about the podcast, friend, family member, just let them know we've got this great podcast out there that's talking all about food history and some really interesting topics and some great interviews over the past several months. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive on in. Here's Dale. Uh, my name is Dale Zimmerman, and I'm in Bismarck, North Dakota, and I own uh, a few restaurants. And the one we're going to talk about today is Peacock Alley, which is downtown in the heart of Bismarck. Great. Now, tell me a little bit about Peacock Alley and how it got its start. Uh, the Peacock Alley has been around since 1933. It is North Dakota's oldest still-running restaurant and oldest bar. Uh, it got its start from Ed Patterson, was a local, he was the mayor and he was a local hotel restaurateur. Um, and he decided that he was going to build this, um, basically a hotel it was going to be his third hotel, and it was going to be um, a high-rise at a time when nobody was building high-rise hotels because of fear of fire. So he uh, decided he was going to build this place that was going to be safe for people to come, and they were going to come from all over, um, and he was going to build this grand, beautiful place. So North Dakota came into the Union in 1889 as a dry state, meaning it did not have alcohol. That was what the people of North Dakota had voted. So even though prohibition didn't start until the 20s, North Dakota was dry before that. And so as he was building this amazing hotel, he put a restaurant in here, um, a couple of them, to serve the hotel. And at the time, there was a place in New York City called the Waldorf and it was across the street from the Astoria Hotel and that was before they joined together so there were two separate entities and there was this hallway of to connect them so it had like glass on one side and it was a way to protect the people from New York City from getting cold in the wintertime and they would be able to go from the Astoria over to the Waldorf and not have to go outside and there was a writer from the New Yorker magazine that was writing about it and was noticing that these people were walking in front of the glass, proud as peacocks. <laughs> and the Waldorf Astoria, or one of the owners of the Waldorf, decided to put a bar at the end of this area, and he called it the Peacock Alley off of that story. Ed Patterson heard about that and saw it and it was something he wanted to emulate so he created a restaurant inside of this hotel called the Patterson Hotel and he named it Scott Kelly. 
so that's where the name came from. That's how it all started. And um, it's been in this building in different places um, since 1932. Right now, our bar, we have a bar and a restaurant all connected. And the bar of the Peacock Alley is in the original Patterson Hotel lobby. Okay. So the, the Peacock Alley is referencing the, the restaurant and bar inside of the hotel. It's not referencing the, the hotel as a whole. Yeah, the hotel was called, which closed in the 70s, but before that it was the Patterson Hotel. Right, right. So um, with with Prohibition, how were they able to navigate through that? I was reading on the website that it was one of those places where uh, there was a lot of stuff going on under the table. Yeah, so North Dakota has some really strange history, and one of the strangest things is that I mean, today we have like the highest beer consumption per capita for like, I don't know, the last 20 years. We have the highest binge drinking. We have like just strange alcohol statistics, not good ones. We have like the highest uh, bar count per capita in the country. And we actually came into the union in 1889 as a dry state, and we did not have alcohol until uh, prohibition ended. Uh, because the residents of North Dakota voted five separate times, and four of those times they voted to not have it. So North Dakota is kind of split into two. So Fargo, North Dakota is made up of mostly mostly Scandinavian people, and then Western North Dakota, which is where Bismarck is, is made up of German immigrants and uh, Russian immigrants. And the German-Russians all wanted to have alcohol, so they had always pushed to have alcohol. Scandinavians thought no alcohol is bad, so, but there was more of them, so they lost every election trying to get alcohol. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, Ed Patterson, being in western North Dakota, uh, built this hotel, and in the basement, underneath, he would have these separate rooms for gambling, alcohol, um, prostitutes, all this stuff was in this building. Well, then when the federal government outlawed alcohol during Prohibition because this hotel was actually built in 1911. So it's older than the actual Prohibition. Uh, So when Prohibition happened, it really escalated because the Chicago mob and mafia created their wealth off of liquor sales. So most people think that Al Capone and all those people from Chicago were getting their alcohol from the backwoods of Kentucky and Tennessee from little stills that Billy Bob was uh, making alcohol from, but that's not true. They actually got it from Canada because Canada was legal and they could mass produce it in huge quantities for inexpensive. So they would actually drive up through North Dakota, through Bismarck, up to Canada, pick up the truckloads of whiskey and bring it down through Minnesota, North Dakota, all the way down back in Illinois. So Al Capone and his men spent more than one night on these trips at this hotel where the Peacock is now. And there's been stories that the building was raided several times over the years <clears throat> because of this, but they had an elaborate alarm system and uh, like stairways and stuff that were hidden. And the alarm would go off and everybody would just scurry up to their rooms. 
FBI agents would come in and no arrests were ever made. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you wouldn't think that uh, a big mobster like Al Capone would be going through, you know, North Dakota, but that that does make a lot of sense that you you got to get mass quantities yeah. of alcohol for as low of a price as possible. Yep. And he, him, and his guys would they would love coming, you know, through here on their way to go get to the supply and uh, Ed Patterson being friends with a lot of these guys and uh, they would bring with them uh, professional like Joe Lewis heavyweight boxer Ed Patterson was a, a Golden Gloves boxer himself he was North Dakota's first boxing commissioner and he really liked that world and you know the mob and mafia in Chicago was heavily tied to the boxing world so people like George Lewis, or Joe Lewis and George Tooney and all these different heavyweight boxing champions of the world would come with them and they would stay here. We have pictures on the wall of them being in the building. Uh, and we display them now as almost like a museum, but you can have your steak and look at a picture of professional heavyweight boxer at the times or at you know, John F. Kennedy when he was here. There's pictures of him inside the restaurant. Um, four U.S. presidents. So we had the dark side, which is, you know, the criminal aspect of it. But we also had four U.S. presidents come and visit this property, this building, and eat here or sleep here or pass through. Um, so for a state that's relatively new, very low population, uh, we have a, a strong history and having notable people pass through. Yeah, that's, to me, that's surprising because I would think, um, you know, I've, I've interviewed, interviewed restaurants in in Madrid and Tampa and San Francisco and and all of them have famous people coming through, right? And that makes a little bit more sense to me. But then, you know, North Dakota, you you wouldn't think that you'd, you'd draw a crowd, right? Yeah. right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, but, you know, in North Dakota, there's, there's not a place, there are a lot of places for them to stop. So Bismarck being the state capital gets their fair share of, it's either Fargo or Bismarck. If they're going to come here, they're going to come to one of those two cities. So, and there's 200 miles apart. So generally, they don't go to both. They just go to one and then leave. And we're right across the street. So the train depot, the historic train depot, which I own, is directly across the street. And that was um, the main train line to get from Minneapolis or Chicago to Seattle. So like FDR, he came on the train, stopped here, and uh, gave his speech, which is right across the street from the Peacock or the Patterson building at the train depot. So I guess location helped being on a major artery with, you know, trains running through that were going cross country that, yeah, it, it makes a little bit more sense now that you would have people stopping by. Yeah. So historically, you know, people traveled by train. They did not, there was no interstate system at that time. So they either traveled by train most likely or airplane, but 
not so much. So being this was a stop on the way to the West Coast, um, we did get people that would stop there. Right. Now, you know, during during prohibition i mean you talked about that that dark side right and um and which it is was very common for restaurants during during that time i mean other restaurants i've interviewed uh they have a very similar history through that that time period in history um but you know you mentioned that that you know brighter side of things with celebrities and and people coming through presidents coming through are there any legends or stories that get passed down through the years that that you've heard of, you know, people coming through there or or just any stories regarding the restaurant in general? Oh, there's so many. We have so where we're located we're on Fifth and Main. So it's basically this is where the city originated, the city started. And because we are the state capital, um, there's a lot of political stuff that happens in the state capital. And because Ed Patterson was um, the mayor for a couple terms, he had a lot of ties to political people. So in the beginning stages of the statehood and the beginning stages of North Dakota, um, there was all kinds of business that was done, not at the state capitol, but it was done in this building. So Governor Langer, who later became a senator, very colorful character, um, was impeached as the governor, was thrown out of office or out as a senator and um, for some shenanigans of whatever. And later ran again and was voted back in again. Uh, he had his office in this building on the second floor. So he ran his office. He was the founder of a political party at the time called the Nonpartisan League. And the Nonpartisan League actually <clears throat> got roots here, but it actually spread into Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, a lot of farming territories. And their national headquarters was in the Patterson building. So they're the ones that originated, like North Dakota is the only state in the union that has a state-owned bank. Uh, we're the only state that has its own mill for wheat processing, and the state owns it. So they were very um, socialistic-minded, mm -hmm. uh, very pro-farmer, and they... Um, their office was here. So because his office was here and this is where he was, this is where a lot of political type people came and they still do today. I mean, the governor, the last three governors are frequent customers of the Peacock Alley. Uh, just last night, the EPA administrator uh, had dinner here. So which is a you know, cabinet type post for the president. And he was in town, so him and his group had dinner here. So, and then we have uh, across the street, a uh, block and a half away, is the original city auditorium for like uh, plays, musical acts, that kind of stuff. It's kind of a smaller arena, only has twenty five hundred seats. 
and then two blocks in the other direction is our city event center, like the Civic Center State Building, which is where they have major concerts. So because of the location, we still get stars today, you know, from all music genres or whatever. When they're in town, they either eat here or order to-go food, and then we deliver to them or we cater their green room um, or whatever they need. Yeah, that's great. It, it sounds like you have a location that a lot of people would, you know, really kill for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we're in a building that's 10 stories high. Um, it was originally designed to be six stories high. But at Patterson, uh, there was a rule at the time when this started construction in 1911 that you didn't have to pay property tax on your property if it was still under construction. So the building was actually under construction for about 24 years. <laughs> and then they got rid of that rule. And then mysteriously, right after that, the property was finished. Um, back then, the, because of the, the great fire in Chicago and all the different fires that had happened, um, hotels were only built one or two stories high. They really weren't doing high rises because of the fear of fire. So he decided to build this building out of concrete. So our floors are all 19-inch thick concrete. The walls are all concrete uh, with support beams. There's no support walls in the entire building. And since it was only designed to be six stories but ended up being 10 stories, uh, the building started caving in on itself because of the weight. And in the late 70s, it was actually condemned to be torn down. And uh, some people from Minneapolis saved the building and turned it from being a hotel to low-income housing. And that was the time that the Peacock went through a remodel and a reshuffle and took over the hotel lobby. Okay. So with that, um, you know, going from being condemned to then having people save the building. Um, how else has the restaurant changed over the years? The chain, well, so the restaurant has gone through several changes um, since 1933. It's been, we're now in the fourth different location inside of this building. And we've been in this location inside the building since 84. Um, and over the years, it's gone from being a, like a really high-end restaurant with, you know, tablecloths, um, being, you know, very formal to being a little less formal during the 90s and the early 2000s. And then now it's more um, even less formal and just because that's what society has done you know, we've become less formal. So because of that, the food has evolved from being, you know, really fancy type food to being more uh, like everyday type food. So our claim to fame is that we, when I looked at the map, when I first bought the this restaurant, um, you know, geographically, we are 60 miles away from being 
the geographical center of North America, which means you are a long ways away from any ocean. So seafood is going to be tricky. Uh, But we have a lot of ranchers here where we live. So I decided that we would have a focus on um, beef. So people for the last 10, 15 years in restaurants, there's been a real focus on local, local, local. So Mm -hmm. we feel that our local is beef and ranch. So either pork or mostly beef. And we just decided that we were going to specialize in beef and we were going to do it differently than anyone else and we were going to do it better than anybody else. So because of that, in 2012, we were recognized uh, with a national award from the National Cattlemen Association, uh, National Beef Innovator of the Year. And then two years ago, in 2017, by certified beef, we won International Steakhouse of the Year. Beat 15,000 restaurants. The only restaurant other than the ones on the West Coast, the East Coast, or in Japan to win that award. So nobody in the heartland has ever won it. And we just promote beef. So now we we educate people. We have classes here. We have a great partnership with North Coast State University. Even though it's 200 miles away, they come here. Um, I'm on their agricultural board, and I speak at different cattlemen's organizations, conventions um, around the country. And it's about creating a product that's sustainable, um, showing the good sides of beef because there's so much negativity about it in today's world. So we've become this vehicle to promote beef and uh, cattle ranchers from all over. Right. And, you know, that's something from reading the history, obviously it's clear there's been a big change and a big shift from, you know, where Peacock Alley started and where it is today. And and that doesn't mean that it's a, a bad change or a, a wrong change. It means that you're willing to grow and adapt with, with what consumers want, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, that's something... you have to be able to evolve or you'll die. Exactly, exactly. Um, again, from reading on the website, that was something that really piqued my interest when it, you, you talked about how um, uh, online it says that they serve, that Peacock Alley serves the most unique cuts of beef. And that's something I was wanting to ask a little bit about, just what what does that mean? What's a unique cut of of beef? Well, so what we wanted to do was create beef in multiple different dishes so that people understand that there's more to beef than just a burger. So when we do a burger, we want to make sure that it's the best burger that we're going to have. Back 10 minutes before I got on this call, a customer came up to me from, uh, they were from Seattle, and he came up to me and he said, I just had your, one of your burgers, and he goes, it's the best burger of my life. And he's like 65 years old, so I'm guessing he's had a couple burgers in his life. Just one or so two, right? <laughs> we want to, yeah, so we want to do things completely different. And because I work so closely with the beef producers and with certifying as beef, um, and I go to their conferences around the country, the 
I've learned like where the pricing is going to go, what are the trends, you know, that kind of stuff, like a couple years before it happens. And there's about four years ago when beef prices were the highest they'd ever been in the history of beef prices. And everybody knows what a filet mignon is. Everybody knows what a ribeye is. Everybody knows what a T-bone is. So our sirloin, those are pretty basic cuts. Mm-hmm. And what I learned of being in the restaurant business is that one of the hardest things to do is cook a steak, especially a cut like a T-bone or a porterhouse or something like that, uh, and do it exceptionally well because you are competing with the male ego. Uh, and what I mean by that is every man that has a grill in his backyard thinks that he cooks the best steak on earth. Yes, so that you is are very comparing true. <laughs> yourself, you are trying to compare yourself to what they think is the best, which is themselves. So I realized that that is probably not going to be their strong suit for us. If we go down that avenue, we're going to get beat because we will never be the best steak they ever had because, of course, they cook the best steak on their grill because they stuck $2,000 into this fancy grill that does all this other stuff. So we don't want to do that. So what we try to do is develop different cuts of beef that are less expensive because nobody else has used them. So the tenderloin is going to be the most expensive by pound beef that you're going to buy. There's limited amounts in each uh, animal, and it's it's the the cut that everybody wants. So we're not going to do anything with the tenderloin to speak of other than make it into a filet mignon because it's just too expensive. And it's readily available at any butcher store or a grocery store. So we don't want to do that. So we decided that we're going to really research and work with um, different companies on trying to source different parts of the animal. And then we're going to use those in dishes or a steak to make something that you can't get at the butcher shop. You can't get at the grocery store. And if you can't get it, well, then, you know, Joe can't make the best steak in his life because he, he can't cook this because he can't get it anywhere else. Right. So now we're competing against ourselves, not competing against Joe's grill in his backyard. So what we do is we have, like, our number one selling steak the last four years by far is called the hanger steak. So four years ago, that was on zero menus across the country. Nobody used it. Uh, there's only maybe eight to 10 ounces of hanger steak on an animal. That's it. So uh, the amount of actual meat that you get per animal is very limited. Uh, So the price was really low because at that time that was like a boutique cut, they called it, and it was basically sold for scrap. So we started developing that cut and started selling it and learning how to prepare it, learning how to cook it, learning how to present it to the customer. And within the first few months, it took off. And pretty soon we were known for that particular cut of meat and people were coming in. I heard about the steak. I'm from Chicago or I'm from Des Moines or, you know, wherever. And we, we got to have it. We got to try it. And then, you know, they'd come up and say, oh my God, that's such an unusual cut of beef. And we have it on our menu for $19, which includes the size. So we're not, it's not, you know, super expensive considering the environment we're in. Um, to have a really good steak. So we thought, well, we're really onto something and we started promoting that. And then 
other restaurants started copying us and mimicking us because we were getting national articles and magazines written about how to compete in today's world with the highest beef prices ever. And here's a success story in little Bismarck, North Dakota, that found these cuts of beef that they can use. It's a great success. And I should have never done those stories because then uh, it turned out <laughs> now we have a supply issue and we couldn't get the hanger steaks is really available. But because we had such a strong market presence of sales on them, um, we were able to get these big cattle producers um, slaughterhouses to actually allocate uh, quantities for us so that we never ran out. And, you know, a lot of competitors were not able to do that because they didn't have those relationships built up. So we were able to overcome the hiccups of no production for a year or so. That's just one of the stakes that we've developed that um, has given us some awards. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, that that just speaks to what you're saying earlier of, you know, being willing to adapt and being willing to change and being able to, you know, ultimately what people want, right, is a, a steak that's cheap and tastes good and uh, to present yeah. them with something that they've never had before that's cheap and tastes good. You know, that's a win right there. Yeah. So for someone visiting... um you know, Peacock Alley, where, or someone wanting to visit, where can they find out more about Peacock Alley? Uh, they can go to the website, peacock-alley.com. Don't hit peacock-alley.com because you're going to get a website selling bits, bits. Um, So that's where we put most of our history, and we actually have links on there to other articles that have been written about us or things that we have done. We don't list them all on there. Um, a lot of the stuff we keep in the restaurants for people to come in and see and be told about. Um, but we have a lot of highlights that we put on there. Great. And I will make sure to link to all of those in the in the description, to link to the website. And, and are you on uh, social media at all, Facebook, Twitter at all? Yeah, we have a Facebook page. We don't use it as much anymore as we used to. I think we've got like 14,000 followers or something, but um, we're not very active on Facebook anymore. But the um, social media world, that would be our strongest one. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll link to that one as well. But uh, Well, thanks so much for taking the time to, to do the interview today and... I appreciate learning a lot about North Dakota I didn't know and then also about, you know, the Peacock Alley. Great. Thank you. Again, special thanks to Dale for taking the time today to come on and, and talk about the Peacock Alley. And I don't know about you, but I definitely want a steak after listening to that. It was fantastic. So now we're going to step into the kitchen. I'm going to talk about a recipe that I made last week for the Toasty Kettle. 
So now we're going to step into the kitchen. I'm going to talk about a recipe that I made last week for the blog at ToastyKettle.com. You can find the recipe there. This one came from my grandma's recipe box. So if you are just joining one of uh, my new listeners, I've been going through some of these recipes that my grandma has had uh, that she's been collecting her whole life. And so this has really been a really interesting endeavor to see all these different recipes and the ones that are well-worn and well-used and well-loved. So this recipe is for a coconut macaroon. And what it is, is essentially a cornflake cookie where you take cornflakes, smash them up, you mix in sugar, an egg, vanilla, and then coconut, of course, and you, you mix it all together thoroughly and you bake it in the oven at 350 for about 12 minutes or so. Now, when I was mixing this up, I was super skeptical because it's kind of a crumbly mixture and it wasn't really holding together. You know, when I'm making a cookie, I think of a chocolate chip cookie dough where it's just, it, it sticks together really well and it holds together and it bakes out perfectly. So when I had this somewhat crumbly mixture and I was going to put that in the oven, I was all I was a little bit nervous that it was actually going to turn out. However, I was pleasantly surprised when I opened the oven at the end of my timer and saw that they had actually, the sugar had caramelized and bound everything together. And what I was left with was a good crunch around the edge and then a nice chewy, crunchy center. So I absolutely loved it. It it really tasted great. It, it kind of made me want a bowl of cornflakes, to be honest. You can definitely taste the cornflakes in there. And it's one of those, growing up eating cornflakes, I would put too much sugar on my cornflakes. And you'd get that really strong punch of milk with the cornflakes and the sugar. And just as a kid eating a very basic bowl of cornflakes. I was on cloud nine. It was fantastic. So this was kind of a nostalgic flavor for me where it took me back to that. It made me think about those days growing up, pouring my own cereal and putting way too much sugar on it. So they're definitely sweet. They definitely pack a punch. And that could be, I mean, the coconut that I was using was sweetened. And so, you know, you might use unsweetened coconut or cut back on the sugar just a touch if you don't want it quite as sweet. But I mean, it's dessert, right? So we want it sweet. We want it rich. We want an indulgence. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you on how you want to adjust that recipe. The other thing I almost did, and I didn't end up doing it, I almost added in some butterscotch chocolate chips as well as some semi-sweet chocolate chips because for some reason in my mind, those go really well with coconut and like a chocolate chip cookie with some coconut in there and then some butterscotch chips, A+. plus. So I was thinking that would be the same here, but I didn't want to stray too far from grandma's recipe. And, you know, I'm doing a, a write-up on her recipe, so I should make her recipe. But uh, it, it turned out great. I'd highly recommend that you make it. It's super easy, super simple. Cornflakes cost me nothing at the store, so it was super cheap and easy to put together. And uh, again, highly recommend it. Uh, try it out. You can find that recipe at toastykettle.com. So that's all I have for this week. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you give us a five-star review. That's going to help other people find the show. And also make sure you tell a friend. It really does help, and it really does help grow the show. Until next week.